Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Finding Nemo. Let's dim the lights and eat some sushi. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Dunn & Duffy Circus. Come for the rhino, snakes, and lion. Stay for magical caboose and popping corns. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And uh, we're filmmakers. We like to pick apart films in the fun way, not in the not in a mean spirited way. See what we can learn, or and sometimes it's good and bad. It's not always like we just are here to serve and open mouth, you know, amazement at everything everyone does. Uh, because sometimes things don't work for us, and we we try to call that out and also learn from it. Like, why do we think it didn't work? Not just oh, that's crap, and that's kind of the end of the sentence. That's not very interesting, nor enlightening, uh, nor is it kind of honoring the creative process and. As artists ourselves, we we do want to honor that process, but it's a funky one. Uh, the last couple of intros, we've been talking about originality and how sometimes it's okay to tread old ground because ultimately there's only so many stories out there. Um, and usually the originality is going to come in through your voice, as you said, adding more view, um, not necessarily just creating something and rehashing it uh, the more specific you make it to yourself the more it'll stand out as its own thing even if it's the same general idea now we we said that and then uh this this a few days ago um i go to imdb to check whatever stuff all the time oh who's what's jody comer up to i've been watching uh, this final season of killing eve and i was like oh she got anything else coming out and so I hit IMDb on a regular basis and every once in a while I'll watch a trailer. There was a new Shyamalan trailer out and like most people, I have a, a love-hate relationship with him and I watch his new trailer and I'm like, wow, oh, this is eerily similar to my own story. And I think anytime as a human being really, but because we all come up with stories, right? On, on, in our own right, we always tell jokes or stories. And so whenever you hear someone, what you think is repeating your idea, you feel like, oh, someone stole that from me. That's kind of the knee jerk reaction. So I'm watching this trailer and it's got like all the same setup of a story I wrote, you know, a couple of years ago and have, you know, passed around a little bit um, on the interwebs. And so I'm, I'm watching this trailer and I'm like, oh, he got my idea. He took it. And it's so absurd. Like Shyamalan has no need to steal from some random dude in Texas. <laughs> He's got so many ideas of his own. But that's, I think, a very human reaction is to see your idea coming from someone else's mouth and just assume they took it from me. You know, my precious. And so I'm watching this trailer and I'm just upset because even if not, it also means that once again, I'm not treading my own ground. I, I just feel like, oh. I'm going to be second to the, you know, to the buffet again. And I'm flustered. I'm a little frustrated. And so I just diving in, start diving in. Like, did he write the story? What's the, what's the backstory on this thing? Cause even if it would be amazing, let's say he did like, he would have had to have gone through some really impressive links to crank it out in that kind of timeline because it would have been a year ago when he could have first seen it. And then it would have taken him like a, a week to write his own version, right? Make some tweaks, make it his own. 
and then immediately go into production so that he could immediately go into pro, uh, post-production. I mean, this whole process usually takes a year and a half, two years of making any film, let alone one of the quality that he's going to put out. Even if you don't like his stories, he puts a lot of production value into it. And so it's a very lengthy process. It's just absurd. Um, and so I'm just talking myself down uh, a little bit. And so, but along the way, I discovered that this was based on a book that came out two years before I even thought of my story. <laughs> and so it kind of just goes back to the heart of there are, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And at the end of the day, back to your point originally was you have to make it your own by just making it about not about you per se, but just about your vision and your ideas and your taste. Yeah. And so I don't know. I saw all the ingredients of, uh, of his new film, you know, this kind of apocalyptic scenario, two men and a, a daughter in the, in the woods and a weirdo comes out of the woods and starts making these threats. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is mm -hmm. so much the story I've been working on for two years. Yeah. I don't know. But it's, it's not. Yeah. You, you just watched the trailer. How, how did you, how did this strike you? Yeah. Initially, initially I thought, Oh <laughs> shoot. Here right. we go. This is, <laughs> but, but it's not the story mm -hmm. and not honestly, not even close. Yeah. I think there's so many wrinkles just from the trailer that are different than your story that it's no contest. But I will say that this is a kind of situation where it's easy to look at it. Like it's easy to look at it like, Oh, I'm scared, but really it should be not flattering, but exciting that you're onto something. That's how that's how I like to look at it, because, you know, we, we had the 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 cycle of vampires. We had the cycle of werewolves. We had the cycle, you know, it's it's this cycle of dread, hmm. right, of of kind of ethereal, this ethereal feeling feeling of dread that I feel like we're in right now, which is a perfect time to make what you're making to make your film, um, because a lot of that is it's poignant to today. And if M Knight comes out and he's making something like this, that's saying something because I feel like, I don't know, he gets a bad rap, but I feel like he's very good at what he does still. And yeah, you can say uh, storytelling, you know, but his filmmaking is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so for him to pick a film like this to do based off of a book that was written a few years ago, I, I think that's a good sign that your story, which is still uniquely you from everything that you've sent me, everything mm -hmm. that I've seen out there, I feel like it's still different and not just because it's you, but I think that the story itself is different and it's not exactly told in the same way. So I, I would look at it as like a positive of like, Ooh, I'm onto something rather than a did, did, you know, is that my story? No. It's did I lose, did I lose my voice because someone else is kind of treading the same ground? Right. That's kind yeah. of the, the fear that creeps over. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah. I yeah. I think you're right, though. I think, you know, these things come in waves. Um, and while the stories that, you know, he and I are probably telling are going to be not a, a huge wave of that. But I like what you're talking about, this kind of existential dread kind of creeping in and lurking around the corner, so to speak. Uh, that's interesting. And even if, you know, we still had 90% of the same story. It's still going to feel different, right? I'm not going to have, oh, Dave Batista, right? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately. But it's, it, 
it's everything's going to be different. The budgets are going to be wildly different, let mm-hmm. alone the, the the actors and location and you know what we're doing behind the camera, what we're going to do with the score. It's all going to be completely different. The lighting, just looking at the lighting, it's like wildly different from what I want to do with you know the cinematography in my film. And so, even if some of the story beats feel the same, ultimately it'll live as you know, completely different things. Uh, it, it, we're not talking about deep impact versus Armageddon, right? It's where it's just kind of so broad and big budgeted. It, it kind of washes out a little bit. Um, even though obviously Armageddon is the better film. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> thank you. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So I, I bring this up just to, I guess, encourage people just because you see something that echoes something that you're working on. Doesn't mean you need to stop working on what you're doing. There's a lot of landscape. Uh, I, I was reading a subreddit a couple of years ago about someone who was like, man, I was working on a, uh, a script about two parents who can't conceive who are trying to adopt. And I just saw this trailer on Apple Plus called Trying for a show called Trying. And it's about two people who are trying to adopt. And so what's the point, you know, of, of creating my my script anymore? And everyone's like, it's fine. Like you could count on all your hands and toes and everyone in your household and everyone on your block, the number of procedural TV shows out there, right? We can have law and order and CSI and CSI Miami and CSI Mars or whatever. It's just, there's no end to some of these things and it's okay because ultimately you're going to tell a specific story with specific relationships. And that's what we're there for. We're not there for the big beats, even though we think we're showing up for a shark movie we're really showing up to see humans interact with each other and deal with the situation um, in a way that's specific to them. Uh, and that is a story and the kind of things you need to be thinking about what makes yours different, not what makes yours the same. Uh, and I think within that, there's a lot of encouragement. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. I mean, there's no way that someone can, there's no way that someone can see inside your head um, and tell exactly your story. So, yeah. so yeah, don't worry about what anybody else is doing. Just do it what you make the film you want to see. Yeah. So, uh, what are we doing today, man? Today we're, uh, doing the classic jaws. If you haven't seen this, um, from 1975, I believe it came out, please pause this episode and go watch it. There'll be spoilers. Um, if if you're watching this or listening to this and you haven't seen jaws, uh, hmm. it's one of those, I think you're familiar with in the, zeitgeist of film yeah (laughs) but probably i'd be surprised if that many people have actually watched it um under a certain age right under whatever 30 years old and you're not a film buff definitely haven't seen it over 30 and a film buff probably seen it maybe if you if you're over like your early mid-20s you've sat down to see it but there's so many other films at that point to watch that i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people skip this even though they know the music right I grew up to music. I don't know when I, I originally watched this. It was probably 15, 20 years after it came out. Because uh, this this came out before we were both born. So anyway, yeah, we'll cover a lot of things. We'll look at some of the cinematography using Day for Night. Story and writing. Quint versus uh, Cooper. The shark cage. Uh, and we'll also have some shark fun facts at the very end. Uh, and other such stuff and things and stuff. A quick synopsis of the film. When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community of Cape Cod... It's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. 
It's directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. It's based on the novel by Peter Benchley and cinematography by Bill Butler, featuring Roy Scheider as Brody, Robert Shaw as Quint, Richard Dreyfus as Hooper, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody, and Murray Hamilton as Mayor Vaughn. You on the Indianapolis? What happened? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. The vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, thirteen footer. You know, you know that when you're in the water, chief. You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Well, we didn't know. Was our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. They didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming... The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. I, I thought you were going to let it keep going. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I debated. I mean, it's a four-minute scene. Long. Yeah. But that, probably one of the best monologues in film history, not just because it's really well-written, The Doll's Eye remark is amazing what a great line i'll forever be jealous of writing something so simple and contrasting and perfectly logical but also uh, robert shaw is giving you the perfect quintessential uh mm, sea captain yeah i would assume that's where the name quint came from um mm-hmm. but he his performance in this film is <laughs> unbelievable so it's been what 47 years since this film came out does it still hold some some scares yeah i mean i yeah it's it's mostly tense uh, i'm i have a uh, pretty intense fear of the ocean myself and so i i feel very much like like brody in mm. this in this film so i identify with him a lot and yeah I, there were moments that i didn't remember happened when like when the the kid gets eaten yeah. I did not remember that. That gave me a visceral feeling that I didn't, I did not like. I see the necessity of it in the storytelling, but it, 
yeah, it was hard to watch. But th- his absence of showing the shark for 90% of the film is what makes this film really great, right? I mean, if we saw the shark at the beginning at all, even a hint of it, right, then it might not be as scary. But the fact that we cannot see it, like we're not allowed to see it yet, was was brilliant, right? It's very Hitchcocky, and it, who what I what I would assume would be was a a big influence for Spielberg would be Hitchcock. I don't know, but I would assume just because the way that uh, he chooses to shoot, he cho- chose to shoot his monster. And the part dialogue of that, is and sorry to jump in, but part of the, a, a large part of uh, him hiding the shark had to do with how it was malfunctioning. Uh, the big mechanical shark that they had just wasn't working properly. And so they had to shoot around that quite a bit oh. is what I understand. Uh, and apparently it was also electrocuting the actors. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so a, a lot of reasons, I guess, to, to hide it, but leaning into that using these Hitchcockian ideas of imply don't show uh, was pretty genius and certainly worked to his benefit, but sorry, uh, the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, I love how, how they hint to a lot of things before they show it, you know, the, um, the air tanks, you know, bro, be careful with the air tanks. They'll explode the, um, he can't go down with three barrels. He goes down the amazement, you know, those kinds of things to, to show the strength of him, him ripping the dock away from those guys who are fishing for him off the dock. Uh, and that stress of him swimming back to the dock and barely getting up in time, but, but making it, I, I thought was really great. Like, cause it would have been so easy for him to just be eaten, but no, let's, let's have him have everybody be stressed and him actually get away. Oh, but in most cases in this film, they don't get away. That's a good juxtaposition there. I thought. And, uh, I mean, some of the things, so I think that Spielberg got better about this as he went on in his career, this whole assuming kind of thing, you know, where did the T-Rex come from? Screenwrite or wherever <laughs> that he, he, he did more sparingly. He's done more sparingly in his, in his later career. Mm-hmm. But early on, I feel like there were some liberties taken. I feel like in this film where it was just, a, Oh, we'll just do this. And it's assumed. And I, I feel like they were done too many times in this mm-hmm. film where I don't, I don't have a specific example, but I, that's how I felt. I felt several times like, huh, where I tilted my head thinking, where did that come from? Or, or, oh, I know what he did. He did an assumption here and, and it, it didn't, it was, it, I think it happened like maybe four or five times in the whole film where it was just, it just happened. Things just happened without any explanation at all. And that's fine to do once, maybe twice in a movie, but multiple times just kind of it made me think about movie making rather than the actual movie itself. Do I love this film? Absolutely. Is it a seminal film? Absolutely. Is it a great example of a, of a monster movie? Yes, absolutely. Do we feel good at the end? Yes, absolutely. Some of the dialogue is cheesy, but you know, it is 1975 as well. And I feel like that has that drastically improved throughout his career. But in this case, it was just, there were moments where I felt like I saw the filmmaking rather than felt it. Uh, but other than that, it's absolutely brilliant. And you're right. Robert Shaw makes this movie for me, makes it absolutely. And has so many iconic quotes from this film. It's, it's just crazy. I mean, there are a lot, you know, Brody, ha- you know, the, 
we're going to need a bigger boat is brilliant. And, uh, and oh my gosh, I mean, I always forget Richard Dreyfus is in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, always, I always forget it. And he's so good in it. There are just different. I think the brilliant thing about this is that there are different levels that you can identify with. You can identify with Quint or Brody or Hooper and get something different out of it. Hooper is the knowledgeable guy. He comes in, he knows the risk and he knows the issues and he has all the knowledge. Brody is, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. This kind of like aloof, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm the chief of police. And so I've got to do something. And so he's the, you know, take action kind of guy. Quint is the, is, is the, I have the real knowledge kind of guy, you know, the, the street smarts, if you will. Um, so you can choose to identify with whomever you want. And I think that's one of the things that makes this, this film so good is that, you know, you have that relationship with any one of those characters and it can change. There are times where I felt more connected to, to, to Hooper because I liked how funny he was at times or how frustrated he was. Like when he was really frustrated with the, uh, with the mayor for not closing the beach, that whole scene was amazing. By the way, that oneer, yeah, of, of them talking to the, talking to the mayor that leads in front um, of the, the big sign that's been uh, vandalized. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, um, I also love, uh, how, you know, they made the shark gigantic, but not unrealistically gigantic. It's not, it's not like Megalodon or something right. like that. It's just a very, very big great white shark that's aggressive and smart. Okay. Now we're in the realm of possibility. And so when, and when you're in the realm of possibility, that's much more scary than when you're just, you know, there's these gigantic monsters that, you know, nobody has any proof exists. Right. And it also doesn't move at insane speeds either. Right. It moves yeah. like you would expect a shark to move. Um, it's the, the size is realistic, even if it's beyond what we usually think of. Uh, like, I think the biggest great white shark we've seen is like 20 feet. And so this would have been five feet bigger than that, which is massive in reality. But whenever you're putting it up on screen, it's easy to be like, that's not enough. We need, yeah, we need the, the hundred foot Megalodon, you know, that yeah. can swallow planets. <laughs> you're just like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. I would say this is, it's great for 1975. And I think that there's a lot to take from it. And then there's a lot that it did first, mm. but which is saying a lot. But I think that Spielberg got even better, you know, as he as he went on. Obviously, you know, we've done, you know, other films recently that uh, I think are the top echelon of some some of the stuff that he's done. So, yeah, that's that's what I would say. I saw the filmmaking a little more than I would like. Hmm. But I think that has a lot to do also with me doing this podcast with you. Whereas the last time I watched this film was probably, I don't know, uh, five or ten years ago. And I probably just loved it and, you know, uh-huh. turned my brain off and, you know. <laughs> Um, I saw, so yeah. And I, I liked, I liked the lighting a lot in it, but there were some moments he just uses hard spotlights a lot and it drives me crazy. Like just soften that shit. Really? You know, there are some shots of, you know, the, the boat driving away into the ocean where I can see, I can literally see a spotlight on the boat or somebody's, somebody's face. I can tell they're uplit. You know, I can see the bounce on your face, you know, because I can see shadows on your eyes. Like, I don't mm-hmm. who's paying attention to this. You know, um, I try to keep in mind that it's not it is 1975 and they are on an well, you know, on a lake or something. I don't know where they shot it, but 
I think in the were, ocean. I'm yeah, not sure, but I think they shot on location. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so I'm sure lighting and cameras like much more complex, you know, in a situation like that. But but it would uh, also be yeah. interesting to analyze those scenes that you're talking about, um, which I didn't do for this episode. Uh, but to go back through and say, okay, there's yeah, there's uplighting here. Why is it motivated? Um, and how does it make you feel? Because sometimes uplighting, right, creates a kind of a monster sitting around the campfire, you know, effect of um, yeah. something's horribly wrong and it creates a sense of dread on its own. And so I wonder if some of that would have been intentional uh, versus uh, mm. we're, we're just on a, a crunch right now. Not in what I saw because it was during mm. the day and I was and it wasn't like uh, I gotcha. And, and and also, if I could speak to just a second to the music, I, that's always confused me. The music in this film has always confused the shit out of me. It is, it's iconic, right? So like the donut is mm. iconic. That's fine. And all the ominous stuff is fine. But in like the boat chase, there's this happy music playing and it makes no sense to me. It, I, I get, you know, maybe there's a dichotomy here of like, hey, we're, okay, let's lighten the mood because we're in a boat and he can't get to us kind of thing. Mm. But I don't want to feel that right now. I want to feel stress. I want to, I wanted to feel like something is going to go wrong, but I don't feel, I didn't feel that at, at all in some of those moments where there's this happy music playing when they're on the boat and, and trying to catch Jaws. So I, I, this has always been a perplexing film for me musically. I, I think that the best part about this film is the, the main theme, Donna, Donna, and the absence of music, mm. which in, in that, clip is a great that you played is a great example of that and i know it's noticed it's noticed that oh my god and i noticed i was like oh my gosh there hasn't been music for like 10 minutes you know what's going on or five minutes or six minutes not what's going on but but oh this is important we don't mm. want anything to get in the way of this and i think that's good filmmaking but the the music just drives me crazy in this movie i i can't do it yeah every single time we've talked about that i think before it's funny yeah because i totally understand what you're talking about like yeah they're they have the the three buckets or whatever the whatever you call them the barrels barrels and they're they're chasing them and it feels like they're winning right and so they put in this light music uh that's almost like a fairy dust being sprinkled on the film and there's certain scenes with like the xylophone kind of running up and down the the scale and i'm like yeah this is classic 70s filmmaking right now um scoring um and yeah, I don't know how to feel about it because I, part of me really sides with you like, oh guys, um, this, but at the same time, I, I, we both understand like this is a different era uh, of filmmaking and there wasn't a ton of, you know, electronic artists sitting around and creating brooding music. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating from that standpoint. I would be curious to see this film rescored with some of the stuff you're talking about, like focusing on the theme, focusing on the silent, maybe recreating some of the uh, sound design to hype in, uh, to hype up, you know, some of the, the water splashing and the boat creaking, hitting that a little bit harder. Cause it's in there, right? That clip that we, we listened to a minute ago, you can hear the, the boat settling and moving and swaying. And maybe in certain parts where there's music, you could remove the music and just, heighten everything uh with a lot more sound design um to to carry the weight maybe not i don't know it would be interesting as a as an exercise but 
yeah, I don't know how to feel about it because I, I caught, so I caught this in theater actually last month. Alamo has been replaying a bunch of Spielberg stuff coincidentally, and they had Jaws playing in 3D. And so I went and caught this in, in 3D, not the red and blue old school 3D, uh, but like the modern, you have the, the shades on gray looking whatever it kind of dulls the the screen but it actually worked really well i wish i hadn't sat in the front row for it the coverage isn't quite as good in your glasses um for for 3d front rows uh, viewing but even with that like it worked really well i think it was that much more immersive and uh once i settled into it uh played beautifully um this is a gorgeous film um to see on the big screen very surprisingly i've seen a, a pretty good amount of classic films on in a theater and uh, they don't always feel right um but this certainly does like the they clearly did a, a remastering at some point in the last 10 20 years and the colors look incredible um uh, it's very sharp they fixed any random scratches and film rings uh that that might have been in the print yeah uh really really impressed with it and i was really surprised because I probably haven't seen this since I was like, I don't know, 10 years old. It's one of those films that you just kind of, you see it once and uh, you go on about your, your, your business. And this movie came out, you know, when my parents were teenagers, <laughs> like that's, that's hilarious to me that we're society is still watching it. This is still going to theaters, you know, they're, they're pushing whatever 60, 70 years old. And, here we are still watching the movies that uh, on a big screen that they watched whenever they were kids. Uh, that, that's pretty cool and exciting to me. And even more so like Spielberg was, I think 26 directing this thing. Crazy, crazy doing that on location. I was, th- I was actually doing the math in my head. Like, man, how old was he? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I said he, in my head, I said he had to be in his twenties when he did this. That's amazing. That is amazing. My God. Yeah. And so for a lot of reasons, and then I think the, uh, the production doubled or tripled, uh, from the original game plan just because of how many issues they were running into. There's a lot of fun backstories, which I'll, if you really want to dive into that stuff, I have a really fun recommendation at the end of the episode that will be just amazing to, to sit and listen to. But yeah, I love it. I think it works. I think that opening scene is incredible. It still plays perfectly like when she gets pulled under the water at the end of that scene in the middle of yelling that feels horrific and you never see a bite you never see blood you never see anything it's just her rigged up to something underneath the water that's just yanking her around like just incredible filmmaking man that's that's really you know and then on top of that like i think if you were to just listen to that scene you could hear the way the sound influences that whole sequence because you have what's happening with her in the middle of the ocean versus what's happening to this random dude, you know, she was about to hook up with who's passing out on the, on the beach. Uh, and you go from this really chaotic, noisy cry for help and splashing to absolute silence of him on the beach and then cut back. Right. It really heightens what she's going through versus the help that's right there. That isn't going to come and, and, and save her. Not that he could have like, 
he could have got himself killed, but he wouldn't have known that. Like the good thing to do is to go and try and help. I think, I think, I don't know. I don't know best practices for shark attacks, but you don't want me in that situation, I guess. I no. We're both dying or you're dying. I don't know which <laughs> uh, TBD. I'm definitely not going to help. I know that uh, whatever I do. Yeah. But that opening scene is amazing. Like it's perfect. So I guess we start right. We're on the camp. We're on the beach at this campfire party. And it opens on a pitch black, so it's in the middle of the night. But as the scene kind of progresses, we see that we're actually kind of at dusk, right? The sun's kind of setting, and and then we're doing a lot of day for night. And so whenever they get this wide shot of the campfire of him approaching Chrissy, that's day for night. And it's probably right at golden hour twilight, maybe. Um, and that's the perfect twilight, if you can is the perfect time to shoot day for night uh, because you have no hard shadows being created by the sun. If you fast forward like 20 minutes into this film, we're doing that scene that you talked about at the dock where the, uh, where jaws pulls the dock apart. Well, as they're setting that whole scene up, we see them reaching and setting up on the dock and we have this shot looking at the, the pier and their hand tying ropes or something. And there's this really hard light being cast on the, on the pier. Well, that's because they're shooting at like, you know, one in the afternoon, the sun's right above them. There's no cloud, obviously no cloud blocking. And so you have this really, really hard shadow. Um, even though it's supposed to be nighttime, it's supposed to be this day for night, um, setup that they're going for. Contrast that with what you see at the, at the beginning of the film, the campfire on the beach, that's day for night when we're looking at the campfire, but shot at twilight, because now you can let the campfire have some punch, right? Campfire isn't going to have any punch fighting against the sun. And so you can't light the, the, the cast, you know, all your extras down there with that campfire if the, if the sun hasn't set yet. And so you have to really pick your time of when you're shooting day for night based on what you're trying to get out of the scene. But even generally without the campfire, twilight is perfect for day for night so that you're not creating these shadows and you'll kind of have a natural soft lighting, ambient lighting across everything. Uh, and, I haven't shot a ton, uh, really any that I've used in a film, um, but I'll be shooting some for a project coming up um, where we're shooting in the middle of the day. You just got to pick your scenes, pick your time. Um, if you can, like you're going to be overexposing or underexposing the image by three stops, two, two, three stops so that you don't blow out your highlights because that's kind of one of those tells. And so you're doing a lot of things to kind of create this atmosphere that when you get into post, you can desaturate a little bit, a lot more blue cast, remove a lot of red and green um, so that it feels like moonlight is lighting everything, is motivating everything. And so, yeah, there's a trick to shooting day for night. And I think one of the best uh, tricks is shooting at the very, very end of the day, preferably right as the sun sets. But it's hard because... That's 15 minutes, 20 minutes of, you know, ambient light that you're going to get before you're screwed. And so do what you can, but rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Yeah. Cool stuff. But, and then, okay. So from there we have the guy and the girl running down, racing down the beach. Um, the rest of the scene is day for night, which is fine. You need to be able to see into the landscape and we still like you go watch Dune. They're still using day for night doesn't hurt anything if you know what you're doing. But what's cool about the rest of the scene is uh, the way they use the girl. Not just how I was talking about they use the guy to create contrast, but then they use the girl by stripping her down, right? She's naked. And what I love about that is it, it starts the scene into this sexy 
arena like right we're about to see two people two lovers swimming skinny dipping and it's so good because nudity in this kind of situation invokes sex right it's kind of inviting to the audience like oh here's something uh that you have no fear over right but soon sexy turns to horror right because now instead of nudity being this kind of beautiful thing it's now this vulnerability she is completely exposed, you know, metaphorically as well as literally. And it's just a great turn of the screw uh, for the audience because uh, you go into this thing with excitement. Although I guess, you know, being Jaws, I bet this was kind of in the trailer. So you kind of know what to expect. Uh, but just assuming you've never heard of Jaws, you've never seen it and you walk into this cold. Uh, there's probably a certain element of like, oh, this is cool. No. Oh, she has nothing protecting her at all uh, from, you know, a shark attack. Uh, and so it just feels a lot more grating to think about. And in a similar way, the kid at the beach that you were talking about is brutal. So the first two attacks that we have are on people that we can empathize very easily with, right? Uh, women are very sympathetic on screen. Children are incredibly sympathetic on screen. Like you don't want bad things to happen to women and children, right? Uh, that's kind of the litmus test in film is whether or not a murderer kills women and children. <laughs> like, and here right. we are at the beginning of the film, uh, within the first 15 minutes, we, we see a, a woman die and a child get mauled. And what I love about the kid being killed uh, is it's both brutal, but at the same time, you don't really see anything, right? We don't see much. It's just kind of bloody water shooting up. And my God, does it shoot up? Like it's a, uh, it's furious. It's kind of amazing. We see one second of him being drug under. Right. We have that close up of him getting pulled under, uh, but there's no limbs, right? Uh, with the girl, we see some aftermath. In the, in the morgue, we see an arm, but in the moment, we never see anything. And they kind of threaten for us to see the kid, right? Whenever the, the mayor is like, I'm not going to let you pull this brutalized corpse uh, of a child onto the pier and, and ruin everyone uh, and upset the mother. And, you know, this is, we're not doing that. But also love about that attack is how it starts because there's no big music cue. We kind of see a, a shot from the beach and it's just the rolling the rolling of the shark and the the tumbling of the kid in the raft. Uh, it's just this kind of, it's almost beautiful in how quiet it is. And it's kind of inviting the audience to like scream on its behalf. Right. And then right after that, like big music cue, big drama, everyone freaks out. Uh, it's pretty strong. And then from there, they don't really need to do anything else. I think the, the rest of the people who die from there are probably just dudes, right? These older guys. Um, yeah, the guy in the tiny, tiny boat. <laughs> yeah. Which, what are you doing in a boat like that, dude? Seriously? And why are you bu bugging the kids? Yeah, right. Get away from the kids. Get away from the kids. Just get away from the kids. Creep. <laughs> yeah. I love that shot, though. Of the, uh, for me, the the scary, that's one of the scariest shots in the film. Yes. Is when you don't see Jaws surface. You see him just below the surface. Mm -hmm. And you see him kind of creep up take a bite and then slowly sink down and he goes with them. That's an incredible shot. And it's terrifying um, because of its reality. You feel like that's probably how they're going to do it. They're not going to do some big bite, you know, above water and splash around. Nope. We just snack. <laughs> we do this yeah. all day, every day. And this is how it goes. Listen, I live in the Bay area, so there are great whites in these waters oh. over here. So every time I go over the, <laughs> Uh, the Golden Gate, I look out and I tell my wife, I'm like, there are so many sharks in that <laughs> water right now. 
every single time, every single time. And I have friends who are like, you know, into triathlon out here and they're like, come on, let's go do it. And I said, you have fun. You could not pay me to get in that water. I'm, I'm not even kidding. Million dollars would not do it. Sorry about it. Everybody can can laugh at me, but that's it is how it is. And it's because of this movie, of because of stuff like that, like seeing it like you get they have one, you know, one like like you're talking about big wide shot from over from above, which if you think about it, how did they get that? Mm. You know, were they in a helicopter? Big, you know, like, big rig, big boat. Yeah. A big giant, well, it had to be pretty darn big because you don't see the boat. Yeah, so, you don't yeah. see it. So there's a big crane they they probably had set up, extended 40 feet or 30 feet, something like that. Yeah. So if you think about it, you know, the shark itself had to be at least 20 feet for it to us to think it's 25 right. or something. So it needed to be, have at least that width away from whatever boat that they're craning off of. Like that had to be a massive setup. And in 1975, this had to be the the first time all of this stuff had been done, you know? So, so yeah, super that, that shot, you're right. It was exhaustingly, uh, uh, you know, what else was amazing is that shot towards the end at the very end, uh, in the cage and you have this. Yes. That's a real shark. uh, Oh yeah. Like writhing around on top of the cage flailing. And I looked that up. I was like, man, what is going on there? I got to know. So they shot that B B team, basically uh, another crew in Australia, where there's a lot of great whites that are 10 to 15 length uh, feet in length. And so what they did is got a smaller boat than the Orca. The Orca is the, the boat, Quint's ship. And so they get a smaller boat than the Orca to, you know, create drama, scale, a sense of scale for the 15 the footer that they're, they're working with out there and a smaller cage. Uh, and they hired an actor, a smaller actor, a shorter guy um, that they could put in the cage. And what they didn't know was that actor uh, was, scared of of water (laughs) they got out there he didn't want to go down and so they had the uh the cameraman out ready they had the uh the the cage you know and they they set the cage down and the shark goes up there gets tangled in the winch the winch i guess breaks and the cage sinks falls with the the, guy in it he never got in it because he was afraid And they were like, saved his life. <laughs> his fear saved his life. <laughs> oh. If you're not watching this, my mouth is agape right now. Yeah. Oh my God. That's kind of wild. That's listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I want you That's I want you all up. to listen to me very closely. <laughs> Do not let anybody tell you. That it is not okay to be afraid of the ocean. Okay? I'm I'm speaking to all of you out there who are afraid but are not wanting to tell other people because they will make fun of you or they will say, oh, it's fine. No. There are only a handful of places on this planet where you will get eaten as a human being. One of them is Alaska. The other one is anywhere in the ocean. Just keep that in mind. Thank you. This has been a PSA from Todd Sapio. And the third is uh, on a date with Army Hammer, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I have no idea what that whole thing is. But <laughs> I don't know, but you got to take funny. shots. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That's amazing story. That's really wild. Um, you mentioned earlier that the, uh, 
Oh, the other thing they, they talk about in the film, most shark attacks happen 10 feet from the beach and three feet of water. Not technically true. The most happen from six to 10 feet of water depth wise. And then from there, I think it's like 10 to 15 feet is the next category of shark consumption. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then after that is like below five feet of water. And so it's, it's there. The possibility is there, but it's all there. Yeah. It's all there <laughs> for you. It's a hundred percent guaranteed. It's a hundred percent. If I'm touching the water, I could be eaten. Just kidding. Oh, that's so good. That scene though, where they're imploring the mayor, where you, you talked about that one where we move from the, I guess the, the view of the beach into that uh, wide shot of the sign, the vandalized sign where they're trying to get the mayor to like shut it down. I love that sequence to your point. I love how static he is, right? He's very steady in the frame while Hooper and Brody are just buzzing around him, begging him, pleading him. And he is immovable except when he feels like moving. So he walks and he brings us to the sign. He points out the sign. It's like, this is what you need to be worried about. Vandals. (laughs) Okay, buddy. That's, that's top priority, of course. Um, (laughs) But I love that, 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 that shot though, because Hooper towards the end of that conversation uh, is in front of the sign and he's discussing the proportions of the shark. He's like, that's accurate. What you're seeing on that sign is accurate. And while he's talking about this, his head goes to the bottom of the frame. And I love it because it's like, he's drowning. We're creating the, the frame as if it's a, we're looking at water and his head is right there at the bottom. His argument is losing. He's lost significance. He's just trying to tread water at this point to, to no success. And, it's just a beautiful framing mechanism uh, that I think, you know, looks apart really, really well. I could not agree more. And I, I, I felt it. Yeah. I, I was, I was feeling the desire to have the camera tilt down, like tilt down. I want to see him. I want to see him. And it never did. And then he, he walks even farther away Yeah, as he's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? As the mayor leaves and he's laughing, he walks even farther away. So it gets even more awkward and, and feeling out of place, right? And I love that laugh. It's such a great acting decision. I think the obvious choice there is to be upset and be angry. Um, But instead, he laughs at how futile that whole conversation has been. Uh, And he's like, I don't know what else to do. Like, uh, all you can do is laugh. And it's totally something I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Same thing. And that's kind of his character. Hooper is this kind of uh, childish, you know, character. Cause whenever he gets mad at Quint on the boat, right. He makes faces behind his back, like a 10 year old. Uh, it's pretty endearing in its own way. I love it. And on the boat, I love the, uh, the way they're framing Hooper and Quint. Like a lot of the time they, they put them on opposite ends of the frame, create this really huge gap between them until we're at night. They're at the table and they start comparing scars and, you know, after a few scars, they, they kind of meet in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so good because, you know, they start on opposite sides of the frame and of the table. And then they scoot in like, well, I'll drink to your leg. I'll drink to yours. <laughs> and it's beautiful because they're now finally finding common ground, um, which is reflected in the frame, right? They're sharing the frame. They're sharing respect. Really, really clever. But ultimately... It can't last. And I think that's such a great decision is even though they kind of have this good moment, it's not permanent. They're still who they are. It's, you know, just a few minutes later that Brody is lecturing a captain on his boat about how to run his boat. Like, stop, don't push it any further, right? It's going to, it's not going to hold. And even though Hooper's right, 
the fact of just being challenged on his boat makes Quint go faster. Like he immediately speeds up yeah. uh, and it's just very telling of their characters and personalities and you buy into it uh, on an emotional level so that when a boat breaks, you're just like, he told you, you are part of the characters at that point. You're not just saying, oh, this is movies trying to uh, find a reason to break the boat. No, you're completely buying into why everyone is behaving the way they're doing. And you're also frustrated with them for doing it. It's yes. beautiful storytelling and great performance uh, from everyone around for sure. The characters themselves are are all so necessary. Imagine this, the scene you played at the beginning. Imagine if Hooper wasn't part of this film. And imagine it's just Brody and Quint in that in that room and and Brody asks Quint about his scar. And you don't have that reaction from Hooper when he says the Indianapolis. Right. Imagine that. The reason like it is such a great way of setting up a really important moment. Have awe from someone else in a scene when when Hooper stops laughing. And gets freaking serious and just you can see him. I mean, they, he gives that long beat had to be like, I don't know, 10 seconds after he says the Indianapolis and, and Hooper's reaction, it, it it completely changes everything. All the air leaves the room, you know, where and, and all, everything comes from this this laughing, you know, high energy to just flat. And and you're waiting for what's going to happen next. Like you're you're told as an audience member, oh, we're about to get told something very important right now. So and I and but Hooper only knows that probably because of his experience as a marine biologist, he probably under like and and like his experience as a shark lover. This is probably a famous story, and I'm pretty sure that this is a true story. Mo Ish. Mostly true. Yeah, yeah I, the numbers are, are wrong. Like I think right. the numbers are somewhere around 100 to 200 people were actually killed, but that's still a crazy experience. I mean, can you imagine? And and I think for him, I don't know if it's from this movie or if it's just a natural feeling. But when he's but when Quint says the scaredest he was was when he was waiting for his turn. That's exactly how I've always felt since I was a little kid getting out of the ocean. Of the scariest point that I have is not a hundred yards from the shore when I'm swimming. It's the moment I reach the the ladder to get out. And I and so it was very validating to hear that again of like, oh yes, okay, I'm I'm normal. You know, like that is a normal feeling. As, I mean, and I can only imagine what he felt like after, you know, his story of losing so many comrades or whatever in the ocean. So yeah, anyway, H Hooper, I think makes the setup for quince iconic um totally uh, agree um and they keep him in the background of while he's delivering that that monologue um so yeah, that we can still engage with his expression and his severity it could it would have been easy and it probably would have worked just fine having robert uh shaw in a single there but by keeping you know hooper reacting to it um to what quinn is saying it it heightens everything that much more and i love how before he even starts before he even tells him right because hooper makes that joke about let me guess mother right he's trying to guess what the tattoo on his arm was and he just cracks himself up and up until that point quint's been laughing along and now 
Quint's not laughing. Instead, he almost pities Quint because mm-hmm. he doesn't know what he just stumbled into. And instead of laughing or even judging him, he just gently reaches over and grabs his arm to make him pause just long enough to hear what he's about to say. Because the the frustration, and it's such a good dynamic between Hooper and Quint. It's really fun, right? You have two seamen from different sides of the track. You have this rich kid, right? The city boy, um, as as Hooper calls him, or as uh, Quint calls him. And but you also have this salty, you know, sea captain um, who's who's paid his dues and then some. It would have been really easy to make Brody the odd man out, right? You have these two uh, seamen who are just two of the same, cut from the same cloth, whatever. Um, instead, uh, Brody kind of becomes the the negotiator between the two, and it's more interesting conflict with Quint and Hooper by seeing the way different sailors react and respond to each other. You know, one's getting his, uh, his, <laughs> his stripes or whatever from the, from the, the elder, but I love it. Right. The, the dynamic there is so much stronger. And so whenever he, they're finding common ground at last, we have a sense of comfort. The laughter is that much louder. And then to your point, like that contrast hits when he starts uh, quieting everything down. And now we really feel the silence uh, because it was filled up so beautifully a minute ago with mirth, you know, Uh, and now it's just quiet out of uh, a sense of doom almost. Yeah. I love it. I love it too, because uh, it plays really well with the shark cage uh, because the Quint has been mocking Hooper with all his toys and fancy gear which it was, it's pretty fancy stuff, like, especially in 75. But even growing up, I didn't, I wasn't like you, I didn't go on a lot of boats. But the idea of having a, a boat having cameras on it would have been wild to me, you know, in the 90s, let alone thinking about that in the 70s. So yeah, uh, Hooper's a, a pretty well to do uh, rich kid. Yeah, I love that it's mocked by Quint, right? It highlights their different, uh, not just personalities, but philosophies about how to go about taking down a, a, a monster. It's it's also the shark cage, a terrible idea. <laughs> like you want to get underwater with the shark, like some little canned human shark treat. Uh, it's just really bad idea. Uh, but at the same time, it provides their victory because that's the whole reason why the oxygen tank is on board in the first place. And so in every way, it's a great storytelling mechanism. It provides conflict between the crew. It provides a really fantastic visual fear for the end of the film, the the climax, um, while also providing the ultimate victory um, that gives them a chance of escaping this thing alive. What a great idea and really good execution of it too. Yeah. Just, just really wonderfully uh, written film, I think. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of the dialogue is actually something that people would say. You know, I think that almost everything that Richard Dreyfus says, like, I wonder how much of it was actually written on the page and how much of it was ad-libbed a little bit because he's such an amazing actor. I mean, I can't even I can't even put into words how good Richard Dreyfus <laughs> is. Uh, Honestly, he's like one up there for me. And I think part of the reason is because of the naturalism he brings to mm. almost all. I mean, all of all of his roles, really. And to the point where, you know, if I were to sit down and analyze it, I can't imagine all of that being perfectly, you know, like what was written on the page. I feel like he has to bring so much of his own person into it. And it, it could, maybe maybe it's just the way that he acts and it, it it's just with that kind of naturalism. But I feel like his actual dialogue is some is a lot of times stuff that I would say or do or, it, you know, without it being written down. And that comes off really well for a character like this, yeah. who 
you know, he has a lot of knowledge, but doesn't have as good of personal skills maybe as, as like Brody. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it comes off very, very well, very much like that. It's, I think it really comes down to uh, the homework that he did for his character because he he sat and analyzed and said, who is this guy? Um, the page doesn't tell you everything, but it gives you a lot of clues for him. He said, OK, this guy is wealthy, so he grew up entitled. The The idea that he had a boat to have been devoured by a shark um, speaks volumes. And the yeah. fact that he had money to build out this world class research vessel says a lot. And then, but it also says a lot that he cares enough about this stuff to spend his life doing it. And so he's probably been around enough sailors like Quint where he knows exactly what to expect. They're going to give him shit um, and he's going to have to eat a little yeah. bit, but they're never going to respect him if he doesn't dish it too. And so he carries that chip on his shoulder because it's going to serve him. And so he's putting all these things into, you know, his character so that whenever it's time to be on set, he knows his character inside and out. And yeah, he's going to laugh right here or uh, he's going to roll his eyes right here. Um, or it's like, oh, now I can prove my metal. I got that scar beat, right? Uh, and he, it's, it, I think you're right, man. It's just really good acting, but I think it's born out of a lot of research and thinking through who his character is, why he is the way he is, why is he saying this line, and where does that come from? Uh, yeah. And, a lot of it's entitlement, right? Growing up wealthy, being entitled. And that makes it very easy for him to talk down to Quint. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's kind of hilarious is every sailor also knows to not tell a captain what to do on his boat. But because he grew up the way he did, it's nothing to him to tell Quint, you know, what he thinks and what what he's doing wrong, right? Uh, that's gutsy. That's really gutsy. Um, yeah. But to him, it's second nature because of his background and because of the research that goes into that. He's, he's going to lean into it. He's not going to shy away from it. It's not coming out of fear. It's coming out of supreme confidence and entitlement. Yeah. A uh, few fun facts for, for sharks. Uh, some of these people probably know. Uh, I think one of these people won't. And so the, the low-hanging fruit here, uh, sharks, very old, older than trees, like trees, uh, you know, as a species, sharks have been around uh, for millions of years longer than trees have been. And so the earliest trees were dated around 350 million years ago. Sharks have been around for what's estimated to be 400 million years ago. Unfortunately, we don't have any documents uh, or, or recorded footage, <laughs> but that's carbon dating and that kind of stuff. Um, wow. The, based on where you find these, et cetera. Uh, sharks are also older than the rings of Saturn. And that might uh, be more surprising based on how long uh, the rings of Saturn have been, been around, right? Uh, that's crazy. Because we think those rings on Saturn formed around 10 to 100 million years ago. And so, of course, you know, shark got that got that beat by, you know, a, a couple of weeks. And so <laughs> the the one that I think will surprise wow. most people, though, the one that I learned this past week uh, was smell. Everyone's familiar with sharks smelling blood in the water, right? That's a phrase unto itself. They smell blood in the water. It's not even talking about sharks. You could be talking about whatever a businessman. Oh, he smells blood in the water. You instantly know he's talking. They're talking about sharks and there's this predatory yeah. image that comes to mind. And so we're very, very familiar with how well sharks smell blood in the water. And the number is at one part per million. And so humans, on the other hand, uh, can smell what's called petrichor, right? That's the smell of rain. 
Um, it's part ozone and part another thing called uh, geosmin. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But the idea is humans can smell better, can smell petrichor better than a shark can smell blood. And not by a little. So if sharks can smell blood at one part per million, humans can smell uh, geosmin at five parts per trillion. That means human noses are 200,000 more times more sensitive uh, to geosmin than sharks are to blood. Like that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it feels you fake. You threw out a lot of numbers there. I don't really know. 200,000 times. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty outlandish number. Uh, I'll link both of those, all, all those fun facts uh, in the show notes so that you can inspect and guffaw at your leisure. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, any final thoughts uh, on, on Jawsies? Well, one, one thing I've heard, and maybe you can dismiss this, this fact that if you are, uh, if you see a shark, if like a shark is swimming at you to, it has, they have very sensitive noses. So try to punch it in the nose. Yeah. That's what I've sent them heard. on their way. I mean, obviously that's what you're going to do. You know, it sounds like an obvious thing, but you know, there are, you know, you hear tricks about like, you know, if, uh, if it's a black bear, you do this. If it's a brown bear, you do that, you know, kind of thing. And they're very different. Like, I think like if it's a black bear, you got to run. And if it's a brown bear, you play dead or something. But like for a shark, you might not necessarily know what to do, but I've heard that you punch it in the nose because it's very sensitive and it hopefully will swim away. Uh, not necessarily from what I'm, I'm reading. So, uh, despite the old, this is from the New York times, um, from circa 2005, okay. despite the old saying that aiming for the nose is the best strategy, a shark's most sensitive areas are really its eyes and its gills aiming for the nose, which is not known to be a weak spot is generally considered a bad idea. Whatever New York times. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. See, well, now, you know, <laughs> now, you know. That's what I always thought. See, this is as much as I know about sharks. Same. No, I would give them the, the old karate kick. Um, yeah. Uh, listen, I don't I don't think that sharks are out to just eat everybody yeah. all the time. I think they're a beautiful species. I just don't want to have any kind of interaction with them ever. So, yeah, this movie, brilliant. So much about it is amazing and done for the first time ever. And I cannot believe that Spielberg is 26 when he made this. What an amazing <laughs> feat uh, this 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 was i mean to last this long there's still rides at disney world and stuff or at universal studios based on this film and it's it's iconic so well done in so many ways so yeah that's all i got to say about that yeah i think it held uh, the box office record uh for a couple of years before star wars hit and then that mm. decimated everybody mm -hmm. but yeah agreed man the really incredible work like iconic for all the right reasons yeah, loved it. So what are you going to recommend this week? So I got to go to a Hitchcock film uh, because I just, he was, he was king in so many ways, but I'm going to go with Psycho, the 1960 Psycho. And one of the reasons is because of the absence of showing a lot, like it was more of a feeling, you know, than anything else. I think there's like one moment in Psycho where you see a knife touch, a, touch skin. It's like very... The, the absence of seeing things is almost scarier than actually seeing it. And I feel like Jaws was very much like that for whatever reason. Maybe it was because the shark was electrocuting the actors. You know, maybe part of it was intentional. I don't know. But 
that's one of the reasons why I feel like this movie has lasted because it's very much like a book in that it doesn't paint everything for you. You imagine it in your head and you imagine it's so much worse than it might actually be if you saw it, right? If, if it was handed to you. I feel like Psycho does that in, in, a, in a brilliant way 15 years earlier. So Nice. I'm going to recommend a podcast. It's called Inside Jaws. Um, it's whatever, cool. six to 10 episodes. Uh, and they basically tell the behind the scenes stories of what making the film was actually like, hurdles, hiccups. I haven't listened to it in a while. The one thing I will say against that podcast uh, is you can probably skip the first 90 seconds or so, two minutes. Uh, they, they start every episode with a true life story of a shark attack which is utterly stupid. I think whoever had that idea is an idiot. Uh, don't do that. The rest of the show is brilliant. Like, and describing people getting mauled by sharks does nothing to help tell the story of how Jaws got made. Uh, it's, I don't know. I wouldn't want to hear Fincher tell me about Seven only to recount every chapter with how someone got murdered uh, in, right. in gruesome de detail. Like it's really stupid idea and if that's not your bag which it's not mine and in, in, in jaws i look away every time they open up a that book and see the the shark attack wounds oh yeah yeah i think killing the kid the the images in the book um i think those were very very edgy for 1975 and i can see why they did them um because no one else was doing that probably certainly not in studio films and you want to push those boundaries. That's, that's edge Lord kind of stuff that works really, really well in 75 and 2022 post 2000. It's no longer edgy. Um, it's like gratuitous, uh, and, and needless for the most part. And so picking and choosing how and when you do those things, um, uh, like telling a story about someone getting eaten alive should be done more carefully than what they did in that podcast. But otherwise, that's a really, really fantastic uh, podcast. And I think it's really well executed, real, very good stories and worth listening to just to see the kind of stuff that Spielberg had to fight through. It's really encouraging if you're a filmmaker to listen to something like that for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Stay tuned next week as we dive further into Creature Features uh, when we take on Bong Joon-ho's 2006 uh, Korean film, The Host. Um, that'll be fun. I'm excited about that. And if you're enjoying the show, uh, don't forget, drop us a review, subscribe, uh, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about, kind of things you find interesting, shout out to, to my man, you dropped us a note on last week's or, uh, uh, two weeks ago, Munich's episode left a really good comment. And yeah, if you want to leave a note on this episode, y'all can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash jaws. And our quote of the day is from the infamous Jacques Cousteau. It is certain that the study of human psychology, if it were undertaken exclusively in prisons, would also lead to misinterpretation and absurd generalizations. You have to think about that one. You do. It's like if you're going to generalize any one small specific population, you're going to walk away with some really bad ideas of what people are like. Um, yeah. and you're going to, yeah, just generalize. So we think about sharks, right? No one talks about all the people sharks haven't bitten, Todd. It's true. It's, it's true. You know, On it's, a daily basis, I haven't been bitten. You're right. 
you know right. so it's it's pretty unfair to sharks to only judge them yes. by jaws uh or random stories of shark attacks because more often than not they let us go <laughs> <laughs> well said i mean you know uh you know the 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 passing conversation in interstellar when they they talk about the universe or nature being evil hmm. versus just moving forward I think that that has a lot to do with this, right? Like, do I think that nature is evil? No, it just things happen. Good things and bad things and good and bad is relative, obviously, um, when it comes to nature and uh, um, not a human decision, but nature. And I put sharks in that category of nature. Obviously, they just eat, you know, they swim and they eat and they make little shark babies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like like Hooper said that's all they do uh and so that's their thing and if if they're so, if they're hungry and you just happen to be there that's bad luck right that's just whatever but it's it's not evil no right? and it's also sometimes accidental right the i love the shot of the kid mm-hmm. on top of the water in the raft same thing happens with surfers uh because to a shark from below i think they mistake them for seals uh um, yeah right sitting on top of the water so they think they're they're getting a seal and instead they're getting plastic and human um yeah which are almost indistinguishable at this point yeah and so yeah i i agree man uh, it's 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 nature and bad luck happens it doesn't mean sharks are thinking about anything like they're just snacking yeah right exactly great quote great quote puts in perspective this was fun. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Wes, for the insights and for straight, keeping me straight on this stuff. And like Wes said, please subscribe, review us uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. It really helps out. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think about what we've said, what's wrong with it, what would be better. We'd love to hear it all. And if you have a suggestion on a film, let us know and uh, maybe we'll cover it. Uh, until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.